Good morning, and welcome to episode 718 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Howdy. How are you? The same. Okay. So we're going to do an email show today. We've had a bit of an irregular schedule lately. There's one week left in Stompers season, and it's unclear how that will affect the podcast because we'll be busy book writing after that. But at least we'll be home, not at baseball games every day, which will maybe make our recording more predictable. So thanks for bearing with us this long. Anything you'd like to discuss? No, thank you. Okay. So we're going to get to emails in a second. I will just bring up the Jock Peterson story. Did you see the Jock Peterson story? He was benched despite having a 413 on base percentage in August. He's not hitting. He has uh, he's had 41 at-bats. He's struck out in 17 of them, and he's had hits in two of them. But he's walked 20 times, so he has a 122 413-293 line in August, which translates to an above-average offensive number, just using WRC Plus from Vangrass, where 100 is league average. Jack Peterson has a 117 WRC Plus in August because of all those walks and all that on-base percentage, and yet he has not been hitting the ball. Uh, he clearly has not lost his plate discipline entirely, but he's he's not looking as good as he did for most of the season, so he has been benched and replaced by Kike Hernandez. He has hit very well all season, 327, 389, 551. Obviously not the prospect or player that Jack Peterson is, but he's been pretty consistently good all year, and he's been playing second base, filling in for Howie Kendrick, and with Kendrick coming back and Chase Utley coming to L.A. Mattingly prefers to have his bat rather than Jack Peterson's. So we've seen a player who was probably the rookie of the year favorite, one of the best players in baseball in the first half, get benched despite a a month where he has a 413 on base percentage. I don't know that I would make this move. Yeah, I mean, you. I don't know that you would make this move even if he had a two thirteen on base percentage. That's one thing, right? Right. You, you personally uh, are a regression to the mean kind of guy, uh-huh. and uh, so you would look at Jock Peterson's overall skill set and performance as a baseball player in his life, and you might give him the benefit of the doubt even if he didn't have the four thirteen on base percentage. Mm-hmm. Uh, now August is a you know, social construct and right. And so, so who's to say that exactly eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, exactly 19 games and uh, 15 starts is the appropriate timeline to judge somebody. If you are going uh, to, to judge him on uh, recency. Uh, And if you go say a week, another social construct, he's now hitting 071, 316, 286 mm-hmm. and it and if you were to say go two months another social construct it would be 154 302 269 well that's a long time that is a long time yeah so that makes it more understandable 
Oh, so uh, yeah. I mean, you. I mean, you could make the case for that you would want to go longer, or you could make the case that you want to go shorter. If you want to go really longer, then you'd go to June, mm-hmm. three months, a quarter, a even more defined social construct. And now he's up to one eighty three, three thirty six, three sixty seven, which plays certainly with his defense. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you wanted to go, say, a year, <laughs> uh, he's now quite good. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I, well... I mean, yeah, I, how much do you think... Uh, do you, let's see. If this were 1999 and we were talking about, you know, some decision that the Dodgers made or the Royals made or whatever team made, then we'd be like, oh, look at them, the tyranny of the batting average again. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think this is a tyranny of the batting average thing? I mean, it's the Dodgers. I would guess it's not, right? Yeah, well, I don't know. It sounds like a, a Mattingly decision i don't know whether there's such a thing as a unilateral mattingly decision or whether every mattingly decision is based on input or orders from the front office but yeah i i maybe maybe it, that's fair maybe it's not just a batting average thing if you're if you're hitting 122 or whatever over a span of a few weeks and you're also walking a ton and you've been a great player for months before that then it doesn't seem like such a big deal. But if you go back two months and you're hitting 150, that's <laughs> that's significant. Even if you are playing good defense in center and you're walking a fair amount, it's it you know it's potentially a sign that you need a break. Maybe uh, maybe you just need some time off to collect yourself or work on your swing or whatever it is because Jack Peterson's probably not a 150 hitter. So. As for whether it gives the Dodgers a better chance to win, which is what Mattingly said, that was his justification for the move, well, maybe maybe it does if he's been hitting 150 with a 300 on-base percentage over the past two months. And also, Hernandez has been really good. He has. Mm-hmm. So Right. And Mattingly like at least says that not, the defense is comparable. And they're not, yeah, they're not replacing him with Scott Pitsednik. They didn't find gritty veteran dude who like uh, you know, would make you think, oh, they're just falling in love with the veteran over-rookie uh, structure or anything like that. I mean, they got another rookie and put him in there, and he's also good. He's also a very good player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so the 413 OBP in August is sort of a fun fact, and it sort of lies about how good or bad he has been. Yeah, I think explicitly, yes. Yeah. Yes, okay. In our last or recent show, when we had Eric Malinowski on, we talked about Madison Bumgarner and his hitting ability. And since that show, he has homered again, and he has also been used as a pinch hitter twice, which I think was the first time that had ever happened. So the Giants have now come around to the idea that he's a hitter, even when he's not a pitcher. He's a hitter. And they had a very very short bench uh-huh. for, for a few days. Yeah. He did single the first time and come around to score, right? But yeah, they used him that way, which is unusual. And Michael asks us a question. Is Madison Bumgarner a good enough hitter for an AL team to target as a starting pitcher slash DH? Are we already in emails? Yeah, I just seamlessly transitioned into emails. Oh, well, can I see? Wait, I had more on the rookie of the year thing. Oh, okay. Go Re- ahead. Real quick. Pretend it's an email. Sure. Uh, so... Uh, as I recall, Keith Law's position is that uh, rookie of the year shouldn't just be the guy who had the best rookie season. It should be the guy who was 
the best rookie. And that's right. a and so like prospect status matters, future greatness matters. I guess mm-hmm. how good you are as a ball player, even if you weren't as good. I might be. I, I the distinction is very difficult sometimes to to parse, and so I might be mis uh, misrepresenting. But you sort of are familiar with that, right? Yeah, it's sort of similar to the All Star Game argument that it shouldn't be the player who has the best first half necessarily. It should be the best player. Yeah, that Chris Coughlin shouldn't have won the Rookie of the Year over Andrew McCutcheon, even though he had a slightly better year, because everybody knew Andrew McCutcheon was the better player and was going to have the better year. I am curious, because we have a very, it seems to me, a very, very, very um, uh, a good case for this. Matt Duffy is having probably a little, is having a slightly better year than Chris Bryant. Mm-hmm. Chris Bryant is going to have a much better career than Matt Duffy. Uh, is this, in your mind, uh, would you have any qualms about batting, uh, voting for Matt Duffy? Is it a tiebreaker? Does it have any merit at all? I'm closer to the it's a one-season award side of the spectrum, so I don't have a problem voting for someone who I think was sort of a fluke if he had clearly the best year. If it's close, though, I might give an edge to the guy that I think is actually the better player certainly as a tiebreaker what's the what's the separation between them right now? i'm look so i'm looking at reference and it's 4.3 wins for duffy and 3.5 for bryant uh-huh and which is, is it definitely all, margin of error is it all defense or is it no is it, uh 131 ops for uh for bryant and 124 ops plus for duffy mm-hmm. and then uh also there's uh there's a there's a base running run in there, and then yeah, there's also defense. He both both defense uh, defensive performance as well as positional value. Uh huh. Well, that's uh, that's pretty close. I, you could you could say that it's insignificant. It's not statistically significant that difference between two players in war of less than a win, and that uh, Bryant will be the better player, and we all thought he was going to be the better player. I guess what is it? What does it matter? What's what's the argument for making it not about the one season award? Does it serve baseball in some way if it goes to a better player in the long run? Like we get to talk about how he was the rookie of the year for the next 20 years as we talk about his other career accolades or it helps his Hall of Fame case or whatever. I mean, does it have any impact at all beyond this year? Because if it doesn't, then... Uh, if I'm confident that the inferior player had the superior year, then I'd I'd be okay with giving it to him. Well, even if it did, uh, then does the same rule apply for Cy Young and MVP? Does it? I mean, the it's the same. By yeah. the same general idea would theoretically apply. Uh, yeah. You, I mean, you could argue that it doesn't do baseball history as good yeah. to have Terry Pendleton winning MVP awards instead of Barry Bonds. You could yeah. argue that if you wanted. Or you could say that maybe it's better for a, a marketing or promotional aspect from for MLB. If you want to get people excited about young players and young stars, then you want to get them excited about a player who's worth getting excited about in the long run. You don't want a, a Coughlin or whoever, a Hamlin type rookie of the year award winner who's just going to be a you know not a bust but not a superstar beyond that year 
So yeah, it, it's you know, probably it probably builds because up, of the, builds up the the uh, Chris Bryant legend, which would be a, a good thing for baseball in the long run. Yeah, the standards I think are generally lower. Well, they are literally lower for a rookie of the year by definition than for an MVP, and so it's probably easier for a Coglin to fluke into it. The other thing is that rookie of the year voting is itself uh, kind of the rules don't necessarily make a lot of sense. I've written about this before that you have uh, there's sort of a bias toward non-prospects getting uh, in position to be rookie of the year because they're usually older when they come up and so they're closer to their peak. They quite possibly didn't have service time manipulation, so they might get to play full seasons. And uh, as I've as I've uh, recorded, uh, Felix Hernandez, for instance, has been younger every year of his career, except until finally, I think last year, uh, he's been younger than at least one. Actually, even last year, he was younger than Matt Shoemaker and uh, and Colin McHugh, I think. Uh, and so I think he every year of his is that can that possibly be true? I think it is. Younger than McHugh, I wouldn't have guessed that. Anyway, I think that he's been younger than like a top three finisher in rookie of the year voting every year of his career. And so if you're trying to recognize great young players, then you wouldn't have the 135 plate appearances restriction. You'd just say who's the best young player. And so it's already kind of a weird and to some degree pointlessly defined uh, award that doesn't have as much value. So maybe it's not, maybe you might as well just give it to the guy who you are most excited about. Mm-hmm. By the way, not Duffy... To, not to mention the arbitrary rookie guideline, what what defines whether a guy is a rookie or not. Just yes. the number of at-bats or innings or service time or days on the roster or whatever. Uh, by the way, Duffy it trails Bryant by a similar margin that he leads uh, on fan graphs and at baseball prospectus. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, <laughs> so that is probably enough for me to say that I'd go with Bryant. I mean, depending on what happens over the remaining substantial portion of the season, I, I always think that talking about award votes is very silly <laughs> and at any point, really, other than the end of the year. I mean, it, you know, if it's a sensational race, maybe it's something you want to enjoy down the stretch, but saying who we would vote for or whatever is kind of crazy when there's still a, you know, a large chunk of the season remaining that will determine who wins that award. Okay, emails. All right, so my attempt to segue seamlessly into emails failed miserably, but I will repeat the question. Michael wants to know whether Madison Bumgarner is a good enough hitter for an American League team to target as a starting pitcher slash DH. So a guy who would actually hit regularly when he's not on the mound. We talked about this, Ben, didn't we? Like, didn't we spend like a pretty long period of time answering this i thought it was i actually thought we were answering his question because the question had already come in oh when when we talked about it uh no i don't think it had i'm pretty sure it had it was after that because it was after another homer and the pinch hits and everything we talked about how good we thought he was or whether he'd whether he'd be worse if he played regularly or not so we could you could extrapolate that discussion to this question but we didn't specifically discuss this question. All right. No. I say no. Yeah. Okay. I say no. I say no also. If only because it would probably affect his pitching, I would think. But 
probably wouldn't be a, a great DH either. Yeah. Okay. So Jake from Cespedes Family Barbecue emailed us about, he emailed us a link to a story about the White Sox and the Cubs from last week. And uh, it's a story from CSN Chicago. It's about Pedro Strope uh, did an emotional demonstration, which is the sort of emotional demonstration that prompted Bob Costas to say something that was uh, kind of questionable about Pedro Strope earlier this year, which he apologized for. But uh, Pedro Strope struck out a guy. He he did a very uh, ostentatious demonstration. And so naturally, people asked the White Sox, the, the other team, about what they thought about this. And Adam Eaton, White Sox center fielder who was struck out by Pedro Strope in that game, said, it's part of the game. It really is. I think fan bases like it. I do. I think it brings a little bit of flair to baseball that hasn't always been there. I think the old-time guys would say, save it, get off the mound. But other people, including me, think it could be good for your team and can really push your team to the end. It was a big moment in the game and ended up being a key part. Hats off to him. He made his pitches. And Strope said it was nothing personal and... Alexei Ramirez didn't have a problem with the fist pumps and everything. He says it was in the heat of the game. He got out of the moment without damage, and it was the way he could celebrate that. And Strope says, you know, he's a guy who gets excited, and that's all it is. And so Jake asked us whether this story about the Sox being totally okay with Strope's enthusiastic celebration is significant. This seems like a clear-cut example of a team we're showing maturity or forward thinking by not turning this into a beanball war. Um, I first want to note that Michael emailed us on August 16th. We talked about Madison Bumgarner with Eric Malinowski on August 17th. Hmm. All right. I was so, not aware of this question, I don't think, when we were talking about it. All right. Uh, now, I have noticed, I think that there has been closer creep, closer celebration creep, in the game, and I'm not saying that in a in a bad way, but there are. I was watching, for instance, uh, the Marlins had a guy Conley pitching yesterday, and he got out of a out of a jam in the fourth yesterday, and you know he was not pitching that well. He'd thrown 85 pitches through four, a lot of base runners, but he'd gotten out of some jams. He was trailing, and he did a big old fist bump and a yell at the fourth. And I'm somewhat as a person who's grown up. Uh, in other eras than this one and uh, has watched baseball change through the years. I think I'm somewhat calibrated to think, oh, whoa, that was excessive. He's, yeah, they're not going to like that because, you know, he's scoreboard and all that uh, and it's the fourth. Uh, and then I, I think that nobody commented on it, nobody remarked on it, and I doubt anybody but me noticed it. And so uh, that actually had me thinking that there is a dilution of uh, of the uh, of the unwritten rule against celebrating uh, on the mound, mm-hmm. and um, I, partly that might be because this is just a hypothesis. But perhaps closers now move in and out of the role more often, and so the who is a closer maybe has changed. And it could just be that now that the eighth inning role is a defined thing, only slightly less prestigious than the closer role, and that the loogie role is a defined thing, and that all these roles that people have, they guys do come in to accomplish a predefined task, 
just like finishing a save is a predefined task. And when they finish it, they get really excited. And so, uh, so I, I don't know if this is a Cubs White Sox specific thing. Uh, and I don't know that it necessarily, I mean, I don't feel like there's been some great, uh, migration away from unwritten rules enforcement in the last few years. If anything, it feels like we've seen a little bit of an amplification of unwritten rules in the last few years. Uh, so my guess is that this is either a, a very specific taboo that is fading or also possible. It could just be baseball players rejecting the premise because they don't like reporters. <laughs> yeah. It could be that if the reporter hadn't said anything the next day, maybe they would have thrown at somebody because they didn't like strope. Maybe somebody else would have noticed it and complained about it when they were drinking that night. I, uh, and they were just like, no, dude, I don't want to get in your drama, Mr. Reporter Dude. I know you're trying to stir things up, and I'm not going to get stirred. Mm-hmm. But the trend is definitely towards more demonstrative, right? Even yeah. Not even just the, the celebrating after striking someone out, but just celebrating, period, when you did your article on home, uh, World Series celebrations and how those have evolved over time and how it used to be just everyone would calmly run off the field and celebrate in the clubhouse and now it's a pile up on the field and and you know a extended celebration and that's fine but that's that's the way things are going so if we were to watch a randomly selected game from 20 years from now or 40 years from now if we could see that right now all indications are that it would be there'd be more of these demonstrations right yeah, and, and you see it team-wide. I mean, you never, 10 years ago, you never had a guy reach on a single and then do some, like, elaborate, like, animal <laughs> sign to the dugout. Right. So they do that. They do the bubbles. They Those are team those are team building things, and so they're in a little bit different category. But uh, there is an, and my, my conclusion when I talked about the uh, evolution of World Series dogpiles was that it was kind of a medium is the message sort of situation where, uh, with the uh, as TV as the game became uh, more of a TV event, there was a expectation that, or, or sort of a feeling that you owed the fans a celebration uh, that uh, they wanted to see you celebrate. And so, rather than just run into the dugout and celebrate on your own, there was you had to provide this show. And it is, after all, baseball is a performance. It's a performative exercise in many ways. And it's possible that the uh, that the kind of uh, meme style celebrations that we see with the antlers and the bubbles and the uh, each pitcher having a save celebration and the arrow and all that that could be specifically a uh, a reaction to uh, to the GIF era mm -hmm. and to the to the highlight the uh, MLB.com highlight era. So mm -hmm. let me ask you this: Okay, if Chapman debuted his somersault role now. Now, partly Chapman is much more established, so Chapman could probably do whatever he wants. But if a Chapman-type pitcher debuted a somersault role now, uh, as opposed to four years ago, would it get the immediate, uh, the immediate backlash and have to be stopped? I think probably yes, because there was who was Mejia. it? Henry Mejia, Mejia right? Yeah. yeah, but Mejia got away with that for a really long time, and Mejia. <laughs> like couldn't stick to one it's once you establish something then it's grandfathered in nobody complains about the arrow mm -hmm. really but Mejia was it was like Mejia was workshopping things yeah uh now the summer I rewatched the summer of salt the other day like four days ago 
and it's really stupid. And it does not look it does not look uh it does not <laughs> he look commit, triumphant. He didn't commit to it. He he sort of he did it half heartedly. And he doesn't have the body for somersaulting. It was long <laughs> yeah. and and gawky. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it I don't know, maybe maybe everything worked together against that one. But <laughs> should have tried to pummel horse. I mean, if he did like imagine a guy who like did like a tuck and roll and came up and did like a roundhouse kick. Yeah. <laughs> would it work? I would love it. I I I don't know. You would have to be see, You remember Guile in Street Fighter 2? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want to see someone do that kick. That uh-huh. that sonic kick. <laughs> if he were good enough. If you were if Carter Caps did it. Or I don't know. Maybe Carter Caps probably couldn't get away with it because People are already upset about his hop. His hop is almost a move in itself. Doesn't, doesn't respect the game. Yeah, right. But if someone as good as Carter Capps debuted that move, I don't know. Well, if a if it well if a veteran suddenly broke out that move, that would be different from a rookie doing it from the start, right? If some respect, if Craig Kimbrell suddenly debuted that uh, move, probably Kimbrell could get away with it. But again, it's like. It's like uh, it's like the Bach rules, where if you have some sort of, you can have kind of a Bach move as long as you do it every time. Like mm-hmm. for your, like if you have a little bit of a pause and then you start again, but then you pause again, like a double set, that's a Bach unless you do it every time. And there is something about Chapman waking up and deciding that he hasn't he hasn't uh, laughed in the face of baseball enough, and now he needs to start doing it. That mm-hmm. might actually not work. Whereas if it's just a thing that you do because that's what you do, uh, it might play better for a rookie. I don't know. Again, it's like all about getting past the first two days. And once you get past the first two days, you're good to go. Yeah. Uh, but it does seem like everybody likes Kimbrel. I mean, he played with Brian McCann. Right. So who's, you know, who knows better what's cool and what's not than right. Craig Kimbrell. He could probably get away with the somersault. He's also got a somersault in body. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Jesse says the Mariners suck. It's the 11th inning of the third game against the Red Sox this weekend when he emailed us and they've given up 45 runs to them total so far. My question regards Nelson Cruz, our lone bright spot now that Felix seems to have given up for the year. As of right now, he is third in the AL in batting. That's still true. He is third in the AL in batting. Behind the leader by just four points and first in homers by two. I think he's now first in homers by three. Unfortunately, he is stuck in 7th in RBIs, a whopping 15 behind Chris Davis. And now I think the lead is even larger. He is still 7th, but he is 22 behind Josh Donaldson, who's been on fire lately. Is there a stat that calculates expected RBIs based on other stats, assuming one has even average hitters surrounding them in the lineup? If so, where does Nelson come out? Also, if someone won the Triple Crown but was on a bad team, would they be considered an MVP frontrunner? And Baseball Prospectus does have an RBI opportunities report. It doesn't calculate expected RBIs, although I guess you could you could figure that out with the information that's on there probably. But it does give you the number of other the number of runners that have been on base when you have come up to the plate, and it gives you the percentage of those runners that you have driven in. It's called OBI percentage, others batted in percentage. And Nelson Cruz doesn't do spectacularly well in that metric. So I sorted by OBI percentage among guys with 400 plate appearances. 
Josh Donaldson is actually first in that stat, so it's not purely that he has gotten a ton of runners on ahead of him, although it's partly that, but he's also driven in a higher percentage of them than anyone else. And that this stat doesn't distinguish between the base those runners are on, so maybe he's had more runners on third or something. There are separate stats on this report for runners on first, runners on second, runners on third, etc. But Nelson Cruz's OBI percentage is 79th out of 132, so he's not doing particularly well at driving guys in as a, as a percentage when they are on base. So it's not purely the Mariners not having lots of runners, although it is partly the Mariners not having lots of runners. And then as for the second question about whether he'd be an MVP front runner if he were leading in RBIs, I would say no, I think. It depends. If he, if he were leading in RBIs because he had 10 more homers or something, then then maybe. But if he had the same triple slash stats and just 23 more runs batted in, I don't think he would be ahead of Trout and Donaldson at this point. Five years ago, same question, but five years ago, or you know, a hypothetical universe where Miguel Cabrera didn't win the Yeah, tournament. Yeah, before Cabrera, I think maybe, just because of the novelty and how long it had been and how special that seemed. But even when Cabrera won, everyone was saying Trout should have won the MVP because he was the better player. No, no, yeah. everybody wasn't saying that. Well, the people who don't vote were saying <laughs> yes, that. Right, and, yes. and Cabrera was the front runner, and he, he won. He won the race. He did. Although, he was better than Nelson Cruz. Yes, that was very close. Of, but a ton of the arguments for Miguel Cabrera were, dude, he won the Triple Crown. How do you even top the Triple Crown? Yes. Be like, well, by having six more wins above replacement and doing right. defense and doing running and doing baseball. But there was like a very clear, like, bro, you win the Triple Crown, you win the MVP kind there of was mentality. Also, a he made the playoffs. He His did, team right. was making the playoffs. There were other things. He was better. He w- he was you know not unreasonably far behind Trout in everything else. And uh, so I'm 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 also I'm not saying definitely Nelson Cruz would, but I think that Nelson Cruz's season, if it won the Triple Crown five years ago, would have beat all comers. Yeah. There is certainly a point at which that was true, and maybe that point was five years ago, before Cabrera. Post-Cabrera and post all the Trout-Cabrera discussions and post the acceptance of war and everything, I think it would be too big a gap now for him to win for a bad team. Now, if he were on a playoff team and having this season, then I think he could possibly overcome that gap between him and Trout and Donaldson, even though Trout and Donaldson are on good teams too and have, I don't know, two and a half win war leads at this point, I think Triple Crown could possibly overcome that. But for a bad team, I think we're probably past that. Now, if he were on a good team right now without the Triple Crown, Mm -hmm. does he win the MVP award? I don't think so. With his numbers? Really? You don't think so? No. You think that that enough guys would look at Donaldson's defensive metrics and defense-aided war and pick him, even though the one guy has, like, the classic MVP line. Like, that classic MVP line is now officially outdated? Well, Josh Donaldson has that line, too, at this point. I mean, it, well, he's got, Cruz has yeah. been a better hitter, but, but like, barely. I mean, and probably only after you adjust for park effects, right? I mean, it, 
Donaldson is hitting 302, 370, 585. And I guess yeah. Cruz is better in all of those stats. Yeah, he is. He's he's also he's got 50 points of OPS and 20 points of OPS plus, and he's got the home runs, if not the RBIs, and he's got you know the batting average. If he wins the batting title, and home runs, yeah, I I don't know. There is a lot of I think there's a lot of awareness of Donaldson's defensive contributions. On the other hand, he's never won a Gold Glove or anything, so maybe not. I I don't know. I think Donaldson or Trout would still take it if they were all on playoff teams clearly donaldson has the narrative poll but maybe he only has the narrative poll because he's on the winning team it's hard to know and there are probably some people who would not vote for Cruz because of the ped suspension and would assume that this is somehow ped related also Mm -hmm. all right okay play index uh yeah sure uh quick one quick one and uh i want to talk about the cardinals runners in scoring position thing mm-hmm. that we talked about, we did an episode about, and you wrote an article about their pitchers being so much better with runners in scoring position or with runners on than without. And so I um, I think we know that one-year flukes happen in these types of splits, even though we were talking about hundreds and hundreds of at-bats, thousands of at-bats, uh, they still happen. And I don't know if you got into it in your article, um, but I wanted to know whether these splits happen over these kind of unusual splits happen over larger periods of time. Uh-huh. So I looked at, uh, first off, uh, the worst team ever. Uh, and I was looking at, well, okay. So first I was looking at worst. We already know the Cardinals are the best team ever for the risp non risp split. Mm-hmm. The worst team ever. If you're curious was 1998, the Arizona diamondbacks were a hundred points worse uh, of OPS worse with runners in scoring position, uh, and we're a bad team, and we're an even worse team because of that. So since 2012, which is four years, and that's 11,000, roughly 11,000 plate appearances in this split. 11,000 plate appearances is like, well, that's Pete Rose's career, right? Right. That's a huge sample. It's it's I, I and I'm gonna say a thing that is not su- supported by fact, and then I'll, I'll acknowledge that. But it seems to me impossible that something could just be noise for 11,000 plate appearances. Now, in fact, there are, you know, we have 30 trials because there's 30 teams, and uh, we have even more than that because there's lots of four-year samples in baseball history, and there's going to be outliers if you run trials. And so maybe, in fact, it's not weird at all. But it does seem like 11,000 plate appearances uh, spread out among uh, a disparate group of individuals who, who, well, you know, just that disproportionate would be not very noisy like that that would that should smooth things out i don't know if that's true but since 2012 uh the cardinals have the third uh lowest split as we talked about guy teams are generally worse with runners in scoring position pitchers are generally worse with runners in scoring position than without mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons uh the cardinals have the third smallest split so their ops with runners in scoring position allowed is only four points higher than without runners in scoring position. To put that in perspective, the Padres' gap is 39 points. Uh The Indians is 38. The Dodgers and the Rays is 32. So that actually is a huge difference. That's a huge difference. The Yankees are actually in that time period. They're the smallest split. They actually have a reverse split. They've been three points better with runners in scoring position. And Although, I mean, the 
since 2012 is including this year, right? It is. Yeah, so it is. That's a big part of it. No, I know, but it also includes the other years. Right. That's what I mean. We we know that this year is is part of it, but they've kept this whatever so-called thing going for four years at least, whether it's. But a lot or not. of that just is this year. Yeah, but that counts. That's yeah. part of the. That's part of the sample. If you, sure. if you look, if you take but that's out totally swinging it, like it, I, I think the Cardinals had okay. totally typical in the last couple of years. Yeah. But if you take out all the parts that make a guy unusual, then he's usual. That's a, that's, you can't take out the interesting parts because then everybody's going to be at zero. You got to sure. You got to include the interesting parts. And anyway, my point is not the Cardinals. Okay. I, they're the hook, but, uh, it's more the Yankees who, we weren't talking about mm-hmm. and the and the Braves who we weren't talking about who have a one point difference and the Padres who have a 39 point difference. there's a 42 point swing between the top and the bottom and I know again the outliers are going to be outliers that's why they're outliers but 42 points seems like a lot to explain by fluke alone and so anyway then I thought well all right maybe 11,000 late appearances isn't enough and so then I went back to 1988 which is like it's all of recorded history. Like exactly, it's like sixty thousand plate appearances or something in this split, and the gap between the best and the worst is still seventeen points. Seattle, thirty points worse with runners in scoring position. The Angels, thirteen points worse with runners in scoring position, and that it's almost impossible to find a cohesive narrative. A cohesive narrative for why a team would be better at this for thirty years. Yeah. Like there's a like not. There's not a single person in the organization for that time, let alone consistent personnel on the field or consistent necessarily coaching philosophy or it's the anything. Longtime clubhouse attendant who's, who's <laughs> been there since 1958. I like, mean, it's you could make like the only thing that's consistent in that time is the air density and uh-huh. the batter's eye, maybe. And actually, the hitter's eye isn't because they they redesigned that. Part, yeah, but can't even not even the stadium. The rocks is, there. It's consistent for Seattle. I right? mean, yeah, Seattle had an indoor stadium, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I'm, I feel comfortable saying that thirty and thirteen, thirty for Seattle, thirteen for Anaheim, is completely fluke, even though it's like infinite plate appearances. Uh, and if you can have a seventeen point fluke over twenty seven years. I feel like maybe 42 over four years isn't actually that unusual either. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to go ahead and say that if I were betting on the Yankees and the Padres next year, uh, I would maybe give the Yankees one point of expectations better than the Padres. Otherwise, I'm wiping the slate <laughs> clean. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of those like statistical significance questions where if you – if you did like your t-test or whatever on this, it would probably show that it's significant because it's a huge sample and it's just an enormous number of plate appearances. And to have that kind of difference over that sort of sample seems like it couldn't be by chance. And maybe statistically it would say that it was not by chance or that it was unlikely that it was by chance, but you, you know something that the t-test doesn't and you know that it, there's really no no possible explanation for how a team could be doing something over the course of three decades and, you know, like 10 roster turnovers and six front office turnovers and 
multiple ballparks and everything that could explain it that could be consistent over that entire time. So the context of what we know might make it seem like, you know, it's not significant that you can get a certain number of statistically significant results just by doing enough tests and looking enough places, but it doesn't always mean something. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So play index, you can use the play index to establish other flukes with the coupon code BP. Use it when you subscribe, get the discounted price of $30 on a one year subscription. Okay. Last question. We will ask Henry's question. Watch, uh, maybe holding the runner on first base is a habit that baseball teams should selectively break. Watching John Lester's latest pickoff attempt, I wondered why the first, bo- first baseman bothered to hold the runner on at all. Lester is not going to throw over to first, and if he does, it seems like it's a boon for the offense. So why not play the first baseman behind the runner and take away the hole? The first baseman could still sneak back in and take throws from David Ross, who will tell you himself that he's very good at throwing behind runners. What is the defensive range cost of holding a runner? And are there other situations where the runner is traditionally or habitually held on base when it might help the defense do not hold the runner? For example, one out, down by two runs in the fifth, A-Rod is simply not going to steal in front of McCann and Beltron. Why not bother? Hold- why bother holding A-Rod on it, on it all? Wouldn't the defense gain more from covering the hole than from keeping A-Rod two feet closer to first base, etc.? Even if a team gave up a few random stolen bases... Might they gain more by cutting off a few hits? Managers shift the defense on probability, so why not hold the runner or not hold the runner on probability as well? I wonder. Uh, I wonder how. Well, it does seem like if your goal is pickoffs, that the daylight play actually at first base might work better. Yeah. I wonder if we'll ever see that. If they go yeah. away from having the first baseman play on the bag and just go to the daylight play. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, a lot of this is a lot of this is that you don't want to give the guy a big secondary lead, right? Um, like a, that's an underrated aspect, I think, of managers' uh, thought processes when it comes to keep, to stopping the running game is that you don't want to have guys able to get good secondary leads, break up double plays, go first to third, all those sorts of things. Uh, so that's probably one of it, uh, one of the things. And I mean. With Lester, do you remember that Photoshop that someone put in the Facebook page earlier this year? Uh, which one? <laughs> the runner <laughs> was taking his lead, and the like the caption or whatever it was like, now this is getting ridiculous, and the runner was like 75 feet off, <laughs> off the back. <laughs> Lester was just staring at him, but he was like two-thirds of the way. <laughs> uh, I mean... Like we've talked about every time we've talked about Lester, there is there is something about a man staring at you with the baseball that even if you know he's not going to throw and is incapable of throwing, that you still see that as a threat. You you can't quite break all of your training and all of your experience uh, dealing with men with baseballs and convince yourself that he's not going to throw. And I don't know if anybody has – I would absolutely love to see a stat cast analysis of the average lead yeah. that runners take mm-hmm. on Leicester this year. Mm-hmm. That would uh, be great. And I, my guess is that based on like just watching those and based on the success rates the guys have had and the takeoff rates, I mean I know they go more often, but they're 
they're getting like a foot, right? They're only getting like an extra foot. It seems to me is mm-hmm. my is how I feel. And uh, so if you took the first baseman back, I guess. I mean, unless you're unless the the daylight play was really well refined, you'd basically might give them four feet or six feet or something. And four feet or six feet is really enough to completely shift the math on base ceiling. Like nobody basically ever gets thrown out by six feet. So if you were able to get an extra six feet, then you could really steal like crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so what Henry is saying makes some sense to me because it does seem like there are times where you absolutely know the guy is not going to steal and he'll probably be too tentative to take an enormous lead even if he's not being held on. And it's got to be a, a significant difference if you had the, the first baseman cutting off the hole. Um I mean, guys hit better when there is a hole, right? When left-handed hitters are up and like left-handed hitters always appear to be more clutch because they get that hole when there are runners on base. And so they do better in the situations where there would be a, a hole on the right side of the infield. And so it definitely makes hitters better. And there's been a lot of analysis of that. So if you could cut off a big portion of that hole and not hurt yourself as much with the lead, which it seems like there are definitely cases. If you pick your spots, there could be cases. For a while, there'd just be so much novelty to it, and the runner wouldn't know what was going on, and he'd worry that there was some kind of trick play going on or something. So you could definitely get away with it for a while, I think, if you use it selectively. But I think it's a good idea. All right, so that's it for the email show. You can continue sending emails. We built up a bit of a backlog, so I still have someone I'd like to, I'd have some that I'd like to get to over our next email show or two, but you can keep sending them to podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. It is now at 2,996 members. So by the time I talk to you next, it'll probably be 3,000. You could be the 3,000th. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. We will be back with another show tomorrow.